Welcome to the Periscope Podcast, presented by Louis Brisboy Bisgarden Smith. I'm Jonathan Pink, and I'm joined by my partner of the entertainment, media, and sports practice, Stephen Beer. Today, we're excited to welcome Tom Noonan, former media executive, producer, and writer. Tom is perhaps best known for the motion pictures The Illusionist, Crash, and Angela's Eyes. Tom has helped run networks and studios, rising to the position of president of NBC Studios and UPN, having previously held senior positions at ABC and Fox. After more than a decade as a studio executive, Tom started his own company, Bullseye Entertainment. Tom also teaches at the UCLA Graduate School of Theater, Film, and Television, and a board member of Mariska Haggerty's Joyful Heart Foundation. He's a public speaker, media expert, and is well-known as a pop culture guru. Hi, Tom. Welcome to the Periscope Podcast. Thank you. Stephen, would you like to ask Tom our first question? Hey, Tom, it's so great to speak with you today. You know, we're getting ready, uh, putting our Sundance schedule together, and as I contemplate my return to Park City, I think about the landscape for independent film, and it's changed quite a bit. Um, over the years since we saw your movie Crash perform there um, a, a while back, the marketplace has changed radically. And uh, there are fewer independent films securing meaningful distribution from traditional industry entities. This past year, there were films that played many festivals that never received uh, meaningful distribution from established distribution companies. What are your thoughts about the independent film marketplace as we head into uh, to Sundance and, and return to Park City next week? Yeah, it's, it's looking pretty grim, isn't it? it it's uh, probably the worst time that I can remember in my lifetime that uh, independent film is uh, suffering through and may actually be the worst time ever. Um, our film, just to point something out, our film Crash actually premiered at the Toronto Film Festival. We've had other movies premiere at Sundance, but not Crash. Um, but just to put a finer point on that, um, it's, a, it's a really, really difficult time for folks who are trying to get their independent films uh, distributed and exhibited. And uh, I don't see that changing anytime soon. Consider the fact that for years, people look to the independent film community and the winners and at Sundance and other key festivals were often uh, rewarded with, with agents and managers and housekeeping deals. I mean, what does that say? What does that project for the future of, of talent recruitment into the business and new ideas and, you know, all the, the, all the excitement that comes out of the independent film community. There are established film festivals and film markets that are serving a slightly different purpose these days than they used to. What you're describing is a time and a intentionality, if you will, that is radically different 
from the way that most of these festivals and markets work today. So back in the day, uh, when, let's say, Steven Soderbergh kind of changed everything with Sex, Lies, and Videotape at Sundance, folks were not really paying attention to Sundance. They weren't really looking at it as a market. They were looking at it as just a place to experience independent film. Uh, they weren't even really looking at it as a place to to troll for uh, new talent. It really was more of a pure festival, if you if you forgive the expression, meaning just a place to celebrate, you know. And I think in many ways we're kind of returning to that because the upside of appearing at a film festival is is really limited these days. Uh, in terms of commerce, uh, the mercenary aspects of festivals have diminished radically. And what's happened instead is they've become marketplaces for early marketing of uh, movies that in many cases have already been set up with distributors or exhibitors. So it's it's really a different uh, world as far as like what the culture of a festival or marketplace is. And there's a magnificent amount of cool films that are uh, being shown at Sundance and at Toronto and uh, Cannes and, and other festivals, Telluride. But broadly speaking, um, it, as you're probably aware with Sundance in particular, the movies that appear at Sundance, uh, they're not really uh, a place where talent is being discovered, just like most valuable corners of the global marketplace, those festivals are largely controlled by the major talent agencies. And it's not some race or marathon where everybody is is getting an equal chance at appearing at the festival. You know, most of these festivals are pretty agented and managered up long before uh, announcements are made in terms of what, what movies are actually playing there. So a lot of the soul of these places, the purity, the integrity of these festivals has been lost. And new festivals will surface and they'll become more of a destination point for new voices and possibly new opportunity. And that's what we saw happen with South by Southwest. It, it became a festival uh, that was an outgrowth of their tech and music festival that already existed. Film was an add-on to South by Southwest. West. And now it's a real destination point and has a little bit more purity in terms of the submissions there, where not everything is agented and managed up yet. But to find a, a low budget film, say that costs two million, that you can do like a negative pickup deal for you know somewhere in that that price range, that may actually hit it out of the park on ticket sales. It seems like it would make more sense to look for a film. There, if I'm a studio or a, you know, streaming company or anything like that, then to say, you know, to build it from the ground up and say, yeah, this is going to cost me $100 million and I think maybe people will like it. What's wrong with my math in, in that scenario? Well, I think what's missing from what you just proposed hypothetically is those dreaded two initials, which is IP. Most studio movies that the studios themselves finance are uh, based on intellectual property or IP that 
is is somehow uh, a durable bet uh, for the for the big studios and streamers to 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 support and and that IP is largely uh, superhero oriented or supernatural or extremely successful books like the Harry Potter series. So you're seeing the bets that are are getting made are either on sequels or on on reliable IP that the marketing departments have told the studio heads, this is what we need. This is what we need for our schedule. This will be predictable income for the coming years. You're seeing studios uh, or, or distributors take swings sometimes at festivals with movies that are, are self-funded outside of the studio system, typically with genre films. You know, like they'll, they still will go out there and try to find their next paranormal activity or their next Megan or, or whatever, whatever uh, horror or thriller or hybrid film that may exist. Uh, you know, when you see like the audacity of creativity and everything everywhere all at once, even though that was a relatively big budgeted film for a modest company like A24, um, meaning it was well beyond their two to $5 million sweet spot, but it was much less than the 25 to 50 million that was reported. I've heard it's somewhere around 20, but setting all that aside, people look at everything everywhere and say, wow, I want to make a movie like that. I want to make something that's that outrageous. It's probably going to have to be something like that if it's not a genre film. And when I say genre film, I mean horror, thriller, or suspense. Sometimes R-rated comedies have a shot at the festivals, but generally speaking, the studios are funding well-established IP that has franchise potential, and independents are are typically drawn to doing character-driven films, rite-of-passage movies that are having a harder and harder time finding a home for broad audiences, unless those movies are not in that realm. If those movies are in the genre realm, they've got a better chance. Okay, so where does that leave the aspiring film school graduate that has scraped together a little money and credit cards and friends and family? How does that filmmaker navigate the business how do they what's their what's their entry point are they relegated to making short films is is that the way to get recognized because it sounds like the ecosystem is not supporting the the traditional dramatic independent film from what you say that's completely correct i'm going to start where you ended the ecosystem is not supporting the traditional character driven dramatic film is that a correct repetition of what you said? It is correct. And it's concerning because we grew up in this film culture and we urged people to tell honest stories about uh, their personal experience. And now you're telling me that even though audiences we know may be interested in them, there isn't a place in the market where they can get, uh, where they can recoup their their investments. And not only that, sorry, sorry, Tom, before you answer, I'm going to chime in with just the other night, I started watching the latest Jurassic Park drivel 
and was so hoping that the dinosaurs would eat the main characters mm. that halfway through, I just finally said, what am I wasting my time with? Let me go find a movie that I'd actually enjoy, which was actually a, uh, a filmmaker that you and I both know. And I went and watched his movie, which was completely fulfilling because it was a character-driven, independent sort of film that had everything I was hankering for. So, I mean, certainly there has to be an audience for something beyond, you know, watching CGI dinosaurs try and gobble up characters who, you know, we could care less about. Well, I, it's there's a lot between the two questions that you guys are posing. The, the first one was it's, uh, it that was what are film students going to do who are coming out, especially after they probably entered film school, hoping that they could make their cool character-driven drama, right? The, I teach at film school. I teach at the graduate film school at UCLA. I've been teaching there for over 25 years, closer to 30 now. And we have this conversation with students every single day. You know, what are you supposed to do? What's your strategy? Do you have a nostalgic idea about the industry versus the reality of the industry? And we try to bring them into reality. Most people have a very nostalgic view of the way that film and television are supposed to operate versus the way the industry is operating today. And, and uh, all I would say is that, like, you know, if, if you didn't like Jurassic World or whatever the most recent iteration is of the Jurassic Park series, you know, uh, there's nearly $2 billion in um, box office revenue that would argue differently than your taste, you know? So what we try not to do is say, I know what works because I know what I like, you know? I, I, what, what we try to do is say, okay, here's the market. I understand that the major studios are only funding IP, you know, what in whatever form of IP they, they deem appropriate. But it's typically franchise-oriented so that they can build a, a, a movie and then have you come back to those characters over and over again, the way that Cameron's done with Avatar, for example. And I know that's an original piece of content, but let's step aside from that for a second. I want to get back to the film school question. Yes, it's short films. Yes, it's dazzling screenplays that that still knock people off their feet and and then it's asking basically your friends and uh and family and your colleagues and your fellow students if you really like my movie do you know anyone else i can show it to where i can pursue more opportunities out in the industry and and the, those industry opportunities are now mostly in small screen at home entertainment that's where you see a dazzling array of character-driven narratives. They're just not happening at your local cineplex anymore. And that's, that's okay. You know, there's a lot of people who prefer to watch movies at home, you know, and watch series at home. And there's plenty of new voices that are breaking in in episodic content. So I don't think that we have to worry about that too much. And I don't think it's a coincidence that, you go to these festivals now, and there's a lot of episodic content that's premiering there as well. 
Let me ask you a follow-up to that. Um, so let's say our film student is uh, not in the writing program, not in the directing program, but instead is in the producing program. When people have come to me and asked, like, how to go about doing this, I, uh, how to become a producer, my, my response has always been, find a property to acquire, find IP. Um, when you should actually be saying, call Tom Noonan and go on his website, theindustryway.com, and he'll help you. Well, so so after I say that, uh, <laughs> you know, I always say find find a, a script, a book, a newspaper article, you know, acquire the rights, lock it up with a multi year option. So so you're saying go to your website and 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 contact you, which is also an, an excellent idea. But is is finding that sort of a property as a as a you know nascent producer still does that make sense? Yes, and especially if it has franchise possibilities. Yes, absolutely. I mean, at minimum, just something bigger than just your original idea. Like Brian Grazer began his career with two ideas. You know, one was Splash and one was Night Shift. He wrote Splash originally and he pitched Night Shift. That would never happen today. That's never going to fly today that a producer just pitches an original concept you can as a writer still. Writers go in and pitch original concepts all the time to streamers and cable networks and big broadcast networks. And it's still a pretty old-fashioned way of developing. You know, you you can get original ideas sold. I'm writing an idea right now for Paramount Plus. That's an original idea. So there's no IP, there's nothing. Just my idea, you know? So that realm of, of creativity still exists. It just doesn't really exist with the big studios. If you're a non-writing producer, the IP is key. I also, as a non-writing person, have identified an article that ran just two weeks ago in New York Magazine, and I'm in the running for it. It's about a jailhouse lawyer that uh, was wrongfully convicted who helps other female convicts get out of jail, and ultimately she prevails. It's an amazing, amazing piece. I feel very confidently that if I get the rights, I'm going to be able to set that up. That's IP, you know? And why do I feel confidently I'll set that up? There's a great role at the center. It's a true story, and it was published in New York Magazine. That's typically enough to get the attention of elite production companies or elite streamers or cable networks, either for a one-off, meaning a movie, or maybe it's a limited series like... Uh, Welcome to Chippendales or Pam and Tommy. So there's a writer, producer, director named Mike Steinberg who produced There's Something About Mary. And Mike had said years ago that he would go around and just find properties and put them in his satchel and try and sell them. And at the time, which is going back, what, 30 years, he said, I would never pay more than $2,000 for anything, what, what he could get, but he had a limit. Do you apply a similar approach when you're optioning or, yes. you know, we just pay whatever the market bears? Yeah, I'm not set up. I frankly, I don't pay anything for options. I, huh. I am, I'm an intermediary. I'm someone who makes what we call a shopping agreement with a rights holder. In this case, this New York Magazine piece uh, features somebody with their own life rights, the jailhouse lawyer I was describing. And then there's an actual writer of the magazine piece who did an excellent job of distilling it. 
So I want to make a deal both with the rights holder, the life rights holder, and the author of the piece, because I think they're both going to be valuable to the sale. And I make an agreement with them, which is a really short-term, non-financial agreement, which is let me shop this to someplace that will then make a deal with the three of us to do the project together, and they'll, they'll burp up righteous money for you for option and for a purchase price should the project get produced. I, as an independent label with, you know, just an assistant, I don't have a development executive. I don't have business affairs. I subcontract all that stuff out. Uh, I don't, I'm not set up to pay for the rights to things. The shopping agreement is, has really evolved into, um, a way to kick off development on a project. And it works in many instances provided the jailhouse lawyer and the journalist aren't hungry for dollars up front. In this case, they have to be patient and they have to be confident in your ability to lead them as a team. The the reward for them is that they get to cut their own deal at the right time and they may wind up being more involved with the project than an arm's length option deal, correct? Yes, that's 100% correct. And that's exactly what I'm dealing with as we speak. I have made it very clear. I've said to them, this is the unsexiest pitch you're ever going to get. I've got no money for you, <laughs> you know? And, and and I'll tell you something, the, the jailhouse lawyer who's free now, uh, she has severe financial difficulties. And so my competition, she she really likes me. She really wants to work with me. She she knows that I get it. She knows that I get the project and what could happen with her, what how to bring the best out of it, you know. Um, but she really needs money right now. And the right money will beat me with this. And I think the right money would be anything that's ten thousand dollars or more right now. Almost anyone with that money would get the rights to that because of her circumstances. But uh, she's really trying to fight having to give in to that because I do have competition with less lesser known producers and production companies who want to get their hands on this thing who may pay to get into the game. You know, like, you know, Jonathan, you know, I know Mike uh, mm-hmm. Steinberg. And, right. you know, Mike was not an established producer when he got involved with something about Mary. I mean, he had a a few directing things and other things under his belt, but they weren't like high profile mainstream projects. And what made him stand out, what could have made him stand out, I have no idea. I don't know how he got involved in Mary, but if he had a few bucks to spend on optioning the script, that would be enough. You know, I mean, really, $5,000 can make a difference between someone getting a project and not getting a project. Right. And as to that story, just because it is such a rags to riches, as it were, just such a, you know, goldmine story, um, he paid virtually, as I recall, he paid virtually nothing for it. And then, you know, ended up, you know, getting... Um, the Farrelly's? Yeah, the Farrelly brothers, right. Yeah, Farrelly brothers involved. And that's and that's when it that's when it took off and, you know, of course, made a mint. So, I mean, I think that's terrific insight, what you just said about how you're going about it. 
Hey, Tom. I'm just anxious we have this media guru here, and we've got this periscope. And so I'm aching to give Tom a periscope question to look around the corner as we're at this this incredible crossroads at the beginning of 2023. And I was going to ask him to give us some observations. I mean, here we are at a, at a time where consumers are spending more money than ever on home entertainment, and yet the industry is in complete panic mode with, with corporate restructurings and, and layoffs. Every week there's another announcement and massive budget cuts. So that seems like a conundrum to me and a, maybe a great way to to discuss the 2023 marketplace and the craziness going on in, in the streaming universe. Yeah, I mean, uh, you're right. People are more and more comfortable staying at home and consuming the majority of their content in their own living rooms. You know, before the pandemic, the uh, average moviegoer went to the Cineplex three to five times a year. I was doing that a week before the pandemic, you know, and I'm still not really back from that. And and I think I go to the movie houses more than any of my colleagues or friends, you know, because I, I make a point of trying to stay up on everything pop culture wise, whether that's mainstream films, uh, art house films, independent uh, foreign films, etc. So, you know, you already have a public that was already very comfortable watching content at home. And part of that was fueled by this spending, um, mad spending spree that all of the major studios had gone on to, you know, to launch their streaming services. And now we're going through this insane contraction across the board. And I, I really think that this contraction, along with, the uh, the threatened writers and actors and directors strike uh, later this year, we're looking at a really rough time, not so much for audience members at home. I don't think they're going to notice it in 2023. They may start to notice it more in 2024. So the audience isn't going to be experiencing this kind of economic content contraction, but boy, the people working in Hollywood will be. Uh, seismic changes. And just can we follow up a little bit about how the corporate mandates will impact streaming, where for the first time ever, we are seeing declining numbers of subscribers. Netflix reported uh, that they were lo actually losing subscribers, not just a decline in growth. So we're now seeing a, a real... Um, a turnabout on premium streaming and the dollars spent, which have been, you know, incredible as in a competitive marketplace. So there's a lot of content out there, but you know, is this business model sustainable? No, and and I think that you know when there was this explosion of of spending, and let's say in 2018, 2019, and 2020, as all of the the big studios started to join. Netflix and Amazon in their uh, streaming quest, um, we saw this huge explosion of, of spending with, uh, with streaming content. And at the same time, most uh, insiders said, this is unsustainable. Not everyone gets a blue ribbon at the end of this. Not everyone's going to finish this race. 
And, and I think that they were all kind of starting that race in the late 20-teens and moving into the 2020s, looking at each other, saying, some of us aren't going to make it. And some of us are going to have to merge. Some of us just are going to fail, you know, but they're not all going to make it. And I don't think any of the major legacy studios or the new tech studios like Apple, Amazon, Netflix, I don't think any of them ever thought we're all going to come out of this fine. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, so the experiment has ended. You've reached this saturation point with subscribers they're starting, the studios are starting to see like, my God, we've spent way too much on content that, that very few people are watching in some cases. And you're seeing this severe contraction. And, you know, I think, I think we're in for this very strange time over the next two years where you're going to see companies either merging or just simply going out of business. I mean, I don't know if you've been following the story with uh, AMC Networks, but I mean, it seems like every other day they're canceling another show. You know, like they announced the end of The Walking Dead and they said, and there will be no future seasons of that. That's your that's your biggest show. And it's it's thrown off every every valuable spin-off that a show could do. And you're you're announcing to the world it's over? Why? You know, what's what's going on? Or at least over for now, like you say, you know, that, that's still some valuable IP and who knows how that resurfaces. Yeah, I mean, I agree. But I mean, why, why be so definitive about it? It's as though they're just leading with their chin saying, somebody either better buy us mm -hmm. or guys, we're going out of business. That's how it reads to me. Well, so, okay. So, so apropos to that and using our Periscope moment here. So what other mergers do you think we're going to see? I mean, you know, who's who's gobbling whom? Does Apple purchase Disney? Any predictions there? Well, I don't have predictions as, well, I guess that's true. It's possible to call them predictions versus uh, anything more substantial than that. But I was saying that Apple's going to buy Disney years ago, you know, long before Iger came back in, who's, you know, addicted to big deals, you know? But I've always thought that the, an Apple-Disney uh, marriage made sense for, but for both parties, mm -hmm. you know, and with Apple being the parent, of course. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, I really believe that, that that makes an enormous amount of sense and, and should happen. As far as the, uh, the other things, uh, as far as other companies are concerned, the company with any profile that I'm most concerned about are the AMC networks, not just AMC, but their sister channels like Sundance and uh, IFC and, and the rest of the labels that they control. Um, I do think you're going to see something, and none of this is, you know, this is a blinding glimpse of the obvious to some of your listeners, but I will confirm that I believe that Warner Brothers and NBC Universal will go into business in some fashion. It's not clear who's going to buy who, but I do think that they will combine. I think that someone will come in, swoop in, and possibly buy up Paramount and Lionsgate and, and make that some kind of a, a, a merger of quality assets. Sony, there's less pressure because, again, you have a, a parent company that isn't completely dependent on their entertainment arm to make money. You know, mm -hmm. so Sony is in less of a panicked position than Paramount and Lionsgate, in, in my view. 
So uh, th- those those are the things that I'm kind of seeing on the horizon line right now. So as a follow up to that, so if 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 I'm a Lionsgate, and, and going back to when you were a studio executive, this kind of tracks that. If if one is a you know Lionsgate, if one's a potential target, let's say. What is what do you think the strategy thinking is inside? I mean, are you cutting back on production? Are you how are you positioning yourself to to survive or to be acquired? Well, Lionsgate has been an acquisition target for I mean, it feels like the last 10 years practically. And and yet whatever the issue is, whether the price is too high or whether there just isn't the right appetite, I'm not sure. But uh, they continue to finance films and they continue to sell television. Now, they're taking very little risk with their TV uh, content. They're basically working for fees for the most part. But that said, they're continuing to robustly finance and release movies. Um, and they still have to answer to shareholders. So Lionsgate and Paramount, for that matter, are both in a position where they have to continue to spend money to keep their value so they can get a decent price. But I think both of those those companies have major, gigantic for sale signs wrapped around the, the their studio gates, so to speak. Well, now that your Periscope is warmed up, Tom, um, I want to focus on the marketplace for 2023 and look to... Uh, the prospect of of bundling as one of the innovations. We've already seen Verizon Plus Play come out or announced as in a sort of a early rollout uh, that started last year. We're going to it figures to play more prominently this year. And Lionsgate is, and Lionsgate Stars is part of the Verizon um, Plus Play service already. So you can see Lionsgate is already. They seem to be already in a. Um, in a place that is forward thinking on the bundling front. Do you see bundling as something that that has momentum? And um, does that does it not uh, remind us of the original bundling that many of us are, are dealing with with our with our cable subscriptions? Well, many of us are dealing with that with our cable subscriptions of a certain age. <laughs> I, I don't know anyone who even has cable who's under 40. You know, so uh, I do think it's reminiscent of the glory days where when we were coming up. But I think uh, most people wouldn't even know that reference, you know, who are under a certain age. But setting that aside, yes, I agree with you. The bundling is is a real thing and it's going to be great for the consumer. It may end up being great for some of these verticals, some of these major studios, but it's it's unclear whether it's going to make a tangible difference in their survival. I, I don't think, in other words, that it will affect any of the bigger picture predictions that we were talking about a moment ago. I just think it's good sense. It's good business. It's almost like when you have a, a website and you're, you're adding features to the website. That may attract more customers. It may not. But part of it's just making sure that you're remaining current. And I think that that's what bundling is, kind of. It's like, okay, maybe a more economic way to help the consumer. It's also a way to remain current and and not stale. But I don't think it's going to be a game changer, per se, for the health and vitality of these verticals. 
And then you you mentioned uh, you mentioned Paramount, and they're also uh, innovating with their partnership with Walmart Plus, where Walmart Plus members get a Paramount Plus subscription as part of their annual fee. So you know it's it's you can see the new directions and the you know, maybe necessity is the mother of invention, but it looks like in the chaos there are those who are reaching out and and innovating, trying to navigate new paths. Yeah, I couldn't agree with you more. Like necessity is the mother of invention, right? And I think that we will see more partnerships like that, especially with those companies that don't have a parent company that isn't so reliant on them to keep the lights on. You know, you look at NBC, you look at Warner Brothers, you look at Paramount, like, these are companies that are strictly entertainment plays. They're not owned by a tech giant, you know? So they they have to pay for all of the bills themselves. So they're making these strategic partnerships. And it's, uh, I think it's desperate, you know? I think it's uh, it's unsettling, uh, but, I, but I also think it's just the reality of the business today. Yeah, well, I'll chime in there because if you look at the the share prices for almost all of the majors, um, Warner, Discovery, Disney, Paramount, I'm trying to think of the ones that I've looked at recently, almost all of them are are down substantially more than Apple, Berkshire, you know, any take another equity. So the shareholders themselves are are kind of getting hammered if those particular equities are, are in their portfolio. So these companies are losing money. So there's there's good reason for them to be looking elsewhere. No, I'm, I'm with you. And, and I just think that there's something very romantic uh, and nostalgic about the big studio system and the big labels associated. Like, mm-hmm. you know, there is no 20th Century Fox anymore. You know, we, we can drive by it at Pico and Motor, yeah. but it's owned by Disney. You know, it's not, and we're going to see more of that. We're going to see more companies that were these wonderful chestnuts in our, in culture, and they're going to go away, you know, at least, or they're going to be owned by a bigger tech or other kind of giant that can use an entertainment brand to help sell their technology. I used to think that that brand would be Tesla, for example where they might get an exclusive library of content if you bought their car. I don't think that as much anymore because I think that Musk is, has lost his mind, you know, with regards to right. uh, management. But <laughs> So many things. But I did think that, that, that where we were headed more was like to Tesla and Uber and other tech companies that were going to buy these entertainment brands because they could probably get them at a decent number and then have use those as ways to promote their product lines. Right. Not to mention huge libraries. I have a nuts and bolts question for you, which this kind of tracks into something that has puzzled me and maybe you can shed some light on it. Um, so, you know, episodic has obviously changed over the years, right? I mean, like a show like Mrs. Maisel, it's, it's eight seasons, but, but two with um, like Amazon's Jack Ryan is a good example for the question I'm going to ask. Each one is an hour long. It's, it's super well produced and, and um, it's super action based, right? He's a, he's a CIA agent, but each one of these things or every two of them basically constitutes a full feature, which has to be so 
expensive to produce. So my question is, you know, basically, what what are the economics behind something like this, or even the amazing Mrs. Maisel, which is shorter but has production quality? How is it these things make sense to produce? And because the expense must be enormous. Well, because I'm your resident expert for this podcast, I have to correct you. It's it's marvelous, Mrs. Maisel. So, uh, oh, right. The amazing, yeah, yeah. It's an amazing show. It's an amazing it's show, show, but too. it's also marvelous. <laughs> uh, yeah. Anyway, these companies rarely take on these giant budgeted uh, shows unless they have a tremendous amount of data that backs up their buy. You know, so in other words, they may take a few big loss leaders, like let's say a House of the Dragon is a gigantically budgeted series for HBO Max or HBO, whatever you want to call it. It's worth it to HBO because they can promote the hell out of the rest of their their slate while viewers are coming over to their platform to see House of the Dragon. And Jack Ryan may be that for Amazon, uh, as Maisel may have been for Amazon, but they're not they're looking at it as a mix of marketing for their subscriptions and just for, you know, value. Um, What we're also going to start seeing is that some of these services like HBO has done recently are going to syndicate parts of their library. So Hmm. if for whatever reason uh, a, a show is not really generating much viewership post their originals, you know, if they, if, if viewers seem to become indifferent, they're starting to license those to other platforms now, much lesser known platforms. You know, we think all the time about the big six, seven or eight streamers, but there's 200 streamers out there. So, you know, wow. you, you can see shows like, I don't know if you guys remember this, you know, we were speaking nostalgically about cable a little while ago, but do you remember when like A&E bought The Sopranos? That was wild. Like, how are you going to air The Sopranos on A&E? Like with all the language and the violence, but they made it work. You're going to see them monetizing these big plays uh, in ways that I think will surprise us, you know, uh, because they've, they've done the job that they were asked to do with their original investment. They drove sub- subscriptions They've run their course, and now you know they can either live exclusively on the platform or they can be rented out elsewhere. But I don't think you're going to see them rent their their content out exclusively to somewhere else. Like so, for example, if Netflix has Queen's Gambit, they may they may rent that out to a lesser platform, but you'll still be able to find it on Netflix too. So that's really interesting because obviously this syndicate model, you know, dates back to to just network television. Right. You know, when we were kids and we were able to watch, you know, Batman on Channel 11, I think at the time in L.A., you know, every afternoon. Right. So that's interesting that that they're basically taking a page from that tried and true book, so to speak. Yeah. And, and, and what you're seeing, what you're seeing all the streamers back off from was Netflix's original assertion that like, hey, you should just be able to binge an entire season over a weekend, you know? Mm-hmm. Everyone's going back to linear now. Everyone's seeing like, no, you have to space this out. Otherwise, you're going to lose your subscriber, you know? Right, I hate that. So they're going back to the models that that have always existed in television for a reason, you know? 
you have to keep your viewers. Right. Yeah. That's so true. I hate that I have to like wait for the next episode of Barry. You know, like, oh my God, you know, it's another week or something. Yeah, it's a uh it's it's a weird thing. Yeah, but it makes sense. To be able to go to the buffet table that often. And then suddenly it's like, nope, now you have to just order it. And it just that just makes so much more sense from a financial standpoint. I get that. Tom, last Periscope question from us. Looking to 2023, do you see an increase in the emergence of AVOD and fast channels? AVOD advertising video on demand, fast channels where you have free advertising supported TV? I do see an increase in AVOD. I can't uh, comment with any kind of expertise or authority besides just an opinion on fast channels because I'm just not as much of an expert in that specific arena. Um, but AVOD for sure, but you're just, this is going to be a really, really rough year. And that's, that's what everybody's cinching their belts in for. And so it makes sense that the, the big streamers would turn to advertising after swearing they never would, you know, uh, for these subscription services, Netflix in particular is the king of hypocrisy with that. But, um, yeah, they're just, they're really, really gasping for any kind of uh, air or money, shall we say, possible. But fast channels, I'm not as sure about. Well, the more um, I think about the future with commercials, the more I think back to the future, the return of original television and the early days of cable. Without having to pay subscription fees, tens of thousands of people are watching all kinds of TV. If they're okay with watching commercials, they can sidestep subscriptions altogether. Exactly. And this is why YouTube is such a successful platform because consumers have accepted that there are ads on YouTube and they've accommodated it, you know? Um, And and again, I, I hate to keep going back to the AMC thing, but AMC was one of the most successful um, ad-supported basic cable networks out there with a suite of other beautifully branded basic cable networks. And they they took the bait and they jumped towards streaming and they started investing hand over fist when they really couldn't compete. And now they're going completely out of business because they they went overboard with their streaming budget. And now that's affecting the mothership, which is the ad-supported cable. And they're, they're lost now. You know, so I I, uh, I think it's a shame because some of these ad supported channels, uh, I think, could have survived if the parent company hadn't gone so bananas in streaming. Like look at MTV and VH1, for example, which are under the umbrella of Paramount and Viacom. MTV, have you ever looked at MTV recently? It's 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 one show. It's ridiculousness. That's it. That's the one show that plays on it. They've taken a cable network and turned it into a program. I didn't realize it still existed. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> huh. Before we say goodbye, I want Tom to to talk a little bit more about his pet projects, including his his website, and also to finish off with any any observations. It's not every day when we're we get to talk to a media guru, so. Um, and, uh, you know, we're grateful to have you here and, and please impart your, you know, your, your insights, but also share with us your, your offerings, including the website and services that you do. And well, I want to stress something 
that uh, because we've talked about some pretty uh, depressing subjects to get today. We talked about companies going out of business or losing legacy brands. And we've talked about how independent film isn't what it used to be. But there's so much great content, I think, broadly still out there, especially in episodic content. And there is real opportunity for young people and for people reinventing themselves in the industry. They just have got to ask for help. They've got to just be willing to not be nostalgic, not be too attached to the past, because there are ways for their voices still to be heard. They're just going to be probably at different platforms and at different links. Like I, I tell my students at UCLA and my clients or my website all the time, like, you should always start with the assumption that what you're doing is going to be episodic. And then you have to make an argument to me why this is a one-off or a movie because our entire business is episodic now. Even when you pitch a, a movie to the big studios with valuable IP, they want to know what's the next episode. They literally say that at studio meetings. What's the next episode? They think about their feature franchises as series not as movies. So we have to be thinking in terms of episodes. Um, I, want to, uh, I want to thank you guys for having me. I do want to promote my site, not only because I think uh, you'll like it, it's called theindustryway.com, but because I think it could really, really help your listeners. It's, it's a great way to learn about how the entertainment industry works, what, what studios and streamers expect, it's uh, there are a variety of ways to work with me. There are videos and study guides. There are Zoom seminars. There's Hollywood retreats. And then, yes, I also offer one-on-one coaching. But I'm really excited about it. I've been getting tremendous feedback about the site, and uh, I hope you'll check it out. I've referred people to you, so I think so highly of what you're offering. But also that you also you know provide valuable expert witness. Uh, services, you know, with respect to your knowledge of the industry and things like that. So I just want to make sure that isn't lost as well. Oh, I, I appreciate that, Jonathan. That's true. And I echo Stephen's uh, sentiment in saying thank you so much for joining us. It really has been a pleasure, and I, I totally value uh, you as a person and, and everything you had to say. Well, I had a great time, guys. Thanks for having me. Thanks so much, Tom. Thanks, man. Take care. See ya. The Periscope Podcast is presented by Lewis Brisboy a nationally recognized, multifaceted, full-service law firm focused on today's challenges and tomorrow's opportunities. Your co-hosts are Stephen Beer and Jonathan Pink. Our publicity producer is Ayush Kumar. Our technical producer is Noah Vanderwerf. 